I'm super excited for today. We have David Clark from Vencap, who is one of my fave LPs to talk to, to co-invest with. He's great. And he's been sending out a whole bunch of awesome portfolio data on X, which answers a lot of questions people have about power laws, how they work, what the LP perspective is, DPI, TVPI. I cannot thank him enough. So he was gracious enough to come on our last episode of Origins for the end of the year. And thank you for leading the way on this one. I'm mostly fly on the wall for the next hour, but also very excited to chat with David. And we've met a couple of times over the years and he's always been very generous with his time. Although notation was always well outside his purview and interest. <laughs> so Your perspective here is perfect because as David will explain, they focused on, so to say, more established managers. And one of the running conversations I've had with them for years is the role of emerging managers in venture portfolios vis-a-vis -vis established. So you get to speak on behalf of all emerging managers everywhere. The task is large. I hope I do us justice. Obviously biased around our model, but also totally understand the value of having uh, highly professional, decades-long managers in a, in a portfolio, even if they're really big firms. And obviously look, you look at some of the historical data around a lot of the names that we know well, the Sequoias and Andreessen's and, and others, and pretty hard to argue with some of the data over there over a very long period of time. Well, we're super venture geeks here at Sapphire, but one of the things that we love to consider is exactly this, like where do you find performance in venture? And does it have to be only in these long-term established OG funds? And I think our thesis is obviously we've built our portfolio around this is that no, there's, there's opportunity sets in both emerging and established and being able to dig into this with David is going to be a lot of fun. Also, one of the reasons I actually continue to love the venture business uh, 12 years in is because there's no right way to do it. Well, thank you for leading the way and we should, we should get to it. David, welcome to the Origins Podcast. We're really thrilled to have you join us. You've been doing a wonderful sharing on X, formerly known as Twitter, on your LP portfolio, what you're thinking and seeing, your perspective on what it takes to return a fund, how you've developed your LP strategy around it. Your work as an LP is one I've always admired. I've greatly appreciated the opportunity to become your friend and to co-invest with you. And we're really excited to unpack all of this today on Origins. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. We, we've had, I know we've had some great conversations previously, both Beezer and, and, and Nick in it. So it's really nice to actually get one on the record. Um, so hopefully we can, uh, we can live up to what we've been chatting about previously. Quick bit of background on Vencap. So we were founded in 1987 um, and, and basically all we do is invest in venture funds. Over the last 36 years, I guess it is now, we've made over 400 commitments and our strategy has definitely evolved over that period. Um, you know, like a lot of, uh, of other LPs, you know, we started off, you know, thinking we could go and choose managers. And um, we did that for 20 years and, and then realized that we weren't actually very good at it. And so at that stage, and this is the kind of like late 2000s, we, we really took a step back and did quite a lot of analysis on the underlying investments that we've made, the funds that we backed. And, and one of the things we found was that um, there was a relatively small number of managers that were consistently able to outperform. And the rest of the managers were actually 
producing pretty disappointing performance. So I look at, at all the investments we kind of made up to the mid 2000s and, and the majority of funds we backed um, were doing less than 2x. And as a whole, the, the program was OK, but but it wasn't fantastic. And so we thought there's got to be a better way to do venture. And that's when we really started to dive into the data. And I think that's been the, the real foundation of everything we've done on the VC side since the mid 2000s. Well, I'm just going to say for anyone who doesn't follow you on X, they really should because you've been so thoughtful in sharing information from your portfolio and there's such a lack of it in the general venture ecosystem. And I really love the fact that you push back on a lot of the narratives with data. You shared back earlier in August and September some of the performance data because we had been talking about power laws and just how critical it is to venture. And I think people give lip service to it, but your numbers really grounded it in the reality. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? When we look at the, the underlying data from those 400 plus VC funds that we've backed and got underlying data on something like 15, 16,000 portfolio companies, there were a few things that really stood out. The first one is that that more than 50% of, of VC investments actually don't return capital. And, and we've seen that consistently over a 30-year period. One of the other things we found was there was a relatively small number of companies that were ultimately responsible for the vast majority of the returns that were generated both by our funds and by the industry overall. So when we look at the industry numbers, what we find is that 25 to 30 companies each year are responsible for over half of the total exit value that is generated by the VC industry globally. That was a, a real kind of stark um, realization for us that it's not about trying to manage your loss ratios in venture. It's about can you consistently access those top 1% companies, those 25 to 30 companies that exit each year that ultimately drive the performance of the entire industry. So Nick, get ready for this because I want to, as part of the conversation David and I have been having for a number of years now off screen is exactly this. Like, do you have to be in these companies and is it somewhat driven by the size of your fund? Because obviously the bigger your fund, the bigger the outcomes that you need. But if you are a smaller fund, can you do it with a smaller exit? And that also sort of leads in a little bit on the emerging manager world and the differences. Right. And so what I was going to ask you, David, is when you look at this data, will you then characterize the majority of your portfolio as established managers? I, I would say that um, since the mid 2000s, virtually everything we have done has been with established managers. So the earliest that we would tend to intercept a manager would be fund three. But I think the vast majority of what we've done have been later than that. And while we invest in early stage, uh, we would characterize early stage as series A, not seed. Some of our managers have seed programs, but predominantly, I would say they're investing at series A and beyond. And they're doing it out of funds that are you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of sub $100 million funds that we've invested in over the last 10 to 15 years. So it's a bit of a narrative violation compared to what, you know, we hear from a lot of LPs in that, you know, small funds outperform, emerging managers outperform. That's not what we found. We found that actually, if you want to get consistently strong performance, the best way to do it is to back those managers that have a proven ability to invest regularly in those top 1% companies. And, and that's what we've looked to do. And as a result, our portfolio is very heavily concentrated on probably a dozen managers. And, and while we don't like to publicly disclose the names of the individual managers you back, if you were to ask anybody who were the 25 to 30 best established and, and most successful VC groups out there, um, then our core portfolio would 
pretty, you'd pretty much pick up all of the managers that we back out of those. I think one of the challenges is just trying to understand in venture, like what the benchmarks are and what the actually underlying data is. So I think David's data set is a really great look into what established manager performance looks like over the last, I guess, 20, 25 years. And it's an amazing data set. I think it's hard to filter through as a GP, what the right benchmarks and data sets are. Is it Cambridge Associates? Is it um, some other data set? I mean, it's PitchBook. It's, it's hard to know what the right benchmarks are as a starting place. I can speak to, to our experience at Notation, I'm, I'm, which is probably somewhat generalizable to, to many emerging managers. So sub $100 million funds, we're on our third Notation fund. Our game is different, I think, than probably larger established manager funds. We don't feel like we need to be in the top 1% of companies or the top, you know, the $10 billion company that happens every year or two or whatever. Our fund sizes are very small, few hundred million dollar outcome returns our fund. So we're just playing a fundamentally different game. In our experience, the math is, is compelling for very small funds that are not requiring huge, huge outcomes to do very well. Our loss ratio math is probably similar, actually. It maybe that was not the case in 2020 and 2021, which was an anomaly, but we'd expect half or more of our companies to ultimately return $0. Our top few can be multiple turns of a fund at, you know, a billion dollars or less outcome. Visa, you had some data on, on manager graduation to sort of fund three and fund four. So it'd be great to, to, to sort of explore that a little bit. But I totally get your point, Nick, around, you know, I, I do think smaller funds will outperform. And, and you know, you look at the Cambridge analysis and, and a higher proportion of the, the very best performing funds are going to be from emerging managers and are going to be relatively small funds because of the math. I totally accept that. So, you know, I, I would expect the very best emerging managers and the very best small funds to outperform our portfolio of established managers. The challenge I think comes in terms of predictability. Um, and this is more from an LP perspective. It's how easy is it to identify who are going to be the best performing new managers and that's where we tried to do that over the first 20 years of Vencap and we failed miserably. And so I guess the question I would have is, you know, it may well be that other LPs are much better positioned to be able to do that. And it may just be something that's, you know, that, that we're not very good at. And I think it's really important that, that LPs understand what they can and can't do. The challenge I would throw out there is, do we see a data set anywhere that shows that LPs are actually able to consistently predict which of those emerging managers are going to do well? Because it's one thing throwing out saying, oh, I invested in a 10X fund and a 20X fund. But what we need to see is what does that program look like over the course of an entire cycle on an aggregate basis? And when I look at, at, at our core manager data, then, you know, for, for our mature core manager funds, and we're talking, you know, significant number of funds here, we're generating returns on an aggregate basis in the kind of three and a half to four X multiples. And this is going back over the last sort of 25 to 30 years. So it would be great if anybody knows of a data set, a similar data set for emerging managers, which is actually based on decisions that LPs have made. I, I would love to see that. So some of the performance data that David was referencing that we have shared publicly is that there is a very high breakage rate between funds one and funds two, which is not surprising because so many fund ones 
are sort of trial runs and people are piloting businesses, think of it more like a startup loss ratio. So we're not surprised there's about a 50% loss ratio, which really means I think most LPs, and I think this is true from an institutional perspective, do not engage until a fund two, because a fund one might be sub 10 million. It's very hard to get an institutional level check into that. To David's point on persistence, you want to see how the how the people have sort of decide if they want to be an investor or not. And it's while the news is full of folks who launch much bigger or more established first-time funds, the reality is that's just not what the normal is for first-time funds. So it's probably more fund two or fund three when the data set would start being material. This dovetails into there always have obviously been first-time managers because every great fund that Davidson's had to start out as a first-time fund. We've just seen there's been different times in the life cycle of venture where there've been many more born, right? So there were a lot born in like 98, 99, not a surprise. And then it kind of levels out because in downturns, it goes down and then it kind of, it follows the same rate that you would expect. So you see a lot more in the last five, six years. And there's just insufficient time for that performance to have matriculated out. So the data set is just wonky. And then if you also want to look at performance based on, we tend to look at both TVPI and DPI because we think both metrics are relevant. And this is a conversation I was having with David before and a little bit with Nick was the exits are also really lumpy, right? And so if you want to see performance, you have to have been in some of those up market years. And then if you want to have DPI, you're going to have to have exited. And we just went through a window. So if you didn't exit in 19 through 21, you're holding on now for another, I don't know, I'm making this up, two to five to six years, which means all those funds that have to have performance, I'm sorry, this is a long-winded answer, had to have had portfolios that were in a sufficient point of maturity to then exit in 2019, which means they're really 2010, 11, 12, 13 vintage, potentially earlier. And they just weren't the emerging manager world was just wildly different back then. So this is a long-winded answer of, I wish there was that clean data set. I think we will have a lot more of it in the next 15 years than we have today. I think that's really important is, is to see how, how a strategy works across an entire cycle. Because I think it's really important, you know, a lot of LPs have only come into the, into the VC industry over the last 10 years. You get a distorted view of what venture looks like if you've only seen the market going up. You know, I think we're in the middle of clearly a, a correction. It, it feels like we've seen some of that, but it feels like there's there's also more to come. And so I think, you know, you have to be able to 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 look at your strategy and the results from your strategy across that longer period. Um, both are you able to capture the gains as the market rises, but also does your is your strategy sufficiently resilient that you don't give all those gains back? when the inevitable correction comes. So I think that's, again, one of the challenges for perhaps that emerging manager data set is that we've only got half of the story so far. I'll add a couple other things that I was just thinking on as, a, as I was listening to you guys um, chat. The, the first thing is just, we're also not talking about um, dollar sizes. You know, notation one and two, I'm pretty sure will end up somewhere in a five to 10 X range. Um, TBD on where that lands and they're, they're multiple times returned already in relatively short time periods, small dollar sizes. So from an LP perspective for Sapphire, for example, I can speak to Sapphire, like I'm not sure Notation 1 and 2 will like truly move the needle even at those uh, returns. Um, and so I think that's one perspective. Obviously established, David, for you, you're able to invest a lot more dollars. The other thing I was thinking on was if I were to put my LP hat on for a second, if I were to magically transform into Beezer or David, I think all I would be thinking about for the 
for the emerging folks, the one, twos and threes funds is, are they committed to this for a very long period of time? Um, like that, maybe that's the only thing that matters because presumably folks will learn the longer they're doing it. Um, they'll get more data, they'll be better. And so in my view, maybe the only thing that matters when evaluating a fund one or a fund two is just, are these people committed to doing this for 10 or 15 or 20 years? Do you want me to jump in on this as we have an emerging manager program, which you obviously know, Nick, and it's been a pleasure working with you over these years. Um, so we, we do have an emerging manager program and we have always had emerging managers as part of our portfolio strategy since day one. And we also do established managers. And um, I just want to underscore what David said. As an LP, you need to know what business you're in. Because to do different kinds of investing, we believe, and maybe, maybe other people believe differently, you have to have the team, you have to have the time, you have to have a lot of attributes to go after whatever segment of the world you're going after. But you, you need to know what game you're playing. And if you're playing a game that doesn't work for how you're set up, it's just very challenging. And when we launched our business over a decade ago, to David's point, um, you could clearly see who some of the OGs of the venture world were, but they potentially were in David's portfolio from 30 years ago. And that wasn't, you know, we were just weren't alive then. And so the world was, how do you, how do you work with the established managers to David's point, looking at the fund threes and the fund fours, like the newly established and look for the signs of great potential future. And how do you figure out who the next great ones are when the people like in the emerging manager world come? And I, I, do think very much around what you were saying, Nick, on understanding people's intentions when they start a fund. And I'm about to say something which is potentially hypocritical, but I think the world has capacity for great funds, maybe not firms, but individual funds to work where people do one or two and then stop. But I think the GP has to be very conscious of this because what an LP is listening for is how serious are you about this business? And maybe it's serious for 15, 20, 30 years, or maybe it's serious for one to three cycles, the more the GP knows who they are, the LP will resonate with it. And we've certainly had this conversation with managers who might not want to do it forever. And that's, I think that's a very honest conversation to have, because I think a lot of times LPs really worry that what's happening is a GP says they want to do it. They don't honestly know if they really mean that, because how do you know until you start? And then they get locked in and they don't really want to keep doing it because it is a, I'm going to speak on your behalf, Nick, but it is a hard business. Right. I was just speaking with a GP who has a sort of interesting scout program, isn't the right word, but they work with a bunch of other GPs and sort of smaller individual businesses looking out for how they could might matriculate into becoming more of an established GP themselves. And they were talking about the need to be able to grind it out and to be commercial. And they meant the, both those words very positively. It wasn't a negative. It speaks to running a financial services business on behalf mm -hmm. of people like David and getting through the tough years like today versus the super fun, easier years when everything was up and to the right. And that is my long-winded answer of saying, I actually think it's possible for there to be great funds without somebody doing it forever. But I think LPs are listening for why you're doing it and how you're doing it. And many LPs are not going to want that in their program. So it's it's not normative, I would say. But I, I do think we see it at least. We see people do one or two very strong funds and then stop mm. because that's not what they want to do forever. Can I just jump in with a question there, Peter? Because I'm, I, I'm interested, you know, one, one of the things we really like about established managers are, are, are the groups that handle succession well, but keep some of those older partners still within the firm to help mentor some of the junior people that are coming through, but give those junior people room. And we think it's particularly important because venture, it feels to us venture is an apprenticeship business. To some extent, 
investing and, and choosing which company to, to back is, is perhaps one of the easier parts to it. There's a significant skill set around portfolio construction, reserves management. And I think you only begin to understand the importance of that over time. So I guess a question both to you, Beezer, and to you, Nick, is how much of that you know, weighs on your decision making as you're thinking about, you know, either investing in in these newer managers and, and for you, Nick, how much of your time is sort of spent around portfolio construction and more sort of firm management questions rather than is this a great company? We spend a lot of time thinking about this. We I 100% agree with you. And there's definitely some firms that we work with where you see that, where you see the maybe not older in years, but the elder and experienced states person helping some of the younger folks because there's a lot to the business that's not just picking the next great company, but there's a lot of times when we see people be able to pick the next great company because they haven't actually been in the business that long. So there's a lot of like, why can't it be true versus, oh, we've seen this not work a million times. And it's this interesting mismatch of the two that can produce some real brilliance. Um, I don't think necessarily, though, it's a prerequisite for emerging managers to have it. Candidly, we see some emerging managers where they staple on some experienced folks and it feels a little bit like the, old, the experienced folks are not potentially helping someone, but not providing the, the hardest part of the advice. And so it's actually a detractor. Do, do you know what I mean? And Nick, you launched a fund without anyone yeah, playing I that mean, role. For, for years, I mean, I, I was at Betaworks where we were making investments, but it was not structured like a venture capital firm. And for years, I thought I had sort of done myself a disservice by not going and working at a more traditional venture firm first before starting Notation. I now think that there's there's another way um, so there's no one way. I think the forcing function for me and for us was we have to figure this out, like for our survival. Um, so we have to figure out portfolio construction and how to think about pro rata and reserves and tax and fund auditing and firm building, or we're just going to die. If you care deeply about the craft and you care about building a, a business and, and having a career um, in this for a decade or two, you're going to force yourself to go find the answers um, and surround yourself with really amazing mentors and LPs like Beezer that can sort of help you along the way. I think that worked for us. And it was just a literally like life and death matter of going and figuring out those questions. But I also think that looking back in hindsight, if I had worked at a more traditional firm and learned some of those lessons, um, I would have maybe been slightly better prepared going in. Um, can, I, can I layer in on this? One of the observations I've been having, and I feel a bit like I've just rediscovered that the wheel is round. So I'm going to share my vulnerability on this one. When I look through now in the market, especially in the emerging managers, and we do our own sort of postmortem of what's worked and what's hasn't, there's really something very powerful about, about investors, LPs like yourself and GPs like Nick that really think from a first principle standpoint. And that term gets thrown around a lot. And I kind of hate it because what I think it really means is people who think exactly like Nick does and David, you do, which is what does this mean and why am I here and what's important about this investment and how does it work and really think for themselves versus and we all have to learn somewhere. So I appreciate there's some parroting back what we hear from the universe, but really take a sort of here's how I'm thinking about this and here's why I'm thinking about it. And when I peel back the onion on a lot of our emerging managers that have both been persistent in wanting to do the craft and strong in doing the craft, there's a, there's a huge trend line around that. And it can take multiple different forms. You don't always hear it in the same language, 
but it's very consistently there. And you, you see it in the annual meetings, you see it in how they talk about portfolio companies. I hear the LPs asking different questions. And I think there's, there's something very true about that. I would just add one, one more thing is that a lot of the questions around venture strategy and portfolio construction are a lot easier when you invest in good companies. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I, I, and I think sometimes, sometimes you can get lost in the strategy and you have to sort of bring yourself back and just say, actually, the job number one, two, three priority is go find good companies to invest in and be good partners to those founders. When you, when you look back at the data, the 25 years, what are some of the attributes of your top performing firms and managers? You know, you have this amazing data set. Um, and I think you mentioned sometime 10, 15 years ago, you look, there's some underperformers, there's some overperformers, you leaned into the overperformers. And then I'm also curious, maybe just if you were to put on your emerging manager LP hat, I know that's not common for you. If you could maybe begin to spot some of those attributes with younger firms and younger managers, or maybe that leads you to maybe um, track those firms closer as they do emerge into kind of fund three, fund four, fund five. The single most important thing that, that we discovered when we really looked, so we did an analysis of all of the funds that had generated 3x net returns back to us. Basically, we found for early stage funds, around 90% of those funds had at least one company that returned the entire fund. Nine zero, yeah. Yeah. And many of them actually had two or more companies that returned the fund. So I, I think this idea of, you know, it's going back to the first principles, you know, VC is a power law industry. We know it's a small number of companies that ultimately generate the bulk of the performance. And that's true at the fund level as well. So what can we think of as a proxy for what a fund returning company looks like? And how do we use that to sort of screen for, for managers is, is basically what we're looking at. So we just did something fairly recently where we looked at, you know, who are the most consistent backers of companies that are worth two and a half billion dollars? And, and unsurprisingly, you know, it's the typical, you know, list of suspects. It's the likes of Axel, Sakaya, Andreessen, Lightspeed, Matrix, Hongshan, which is Sakaya China, Index, Tiger, Founders Fund, NEA, Kleiner Perkins, General Catalyst, SoftBank. You know, it's, it's, it's the names that you would expect. The thing that we would then look to layer on top of that is it's great that you can back these highly successful top 1% companies. But you have to do it in a way that moves the needle at the fund level. And I think this is where I would entirely agree with what you were saying earlier, Nick, about the size of outcomes you need. You know, we look at what do we have to believe, given the size of fund that we're investing in, to believe that that manager can generate a fund returner from its strategy. And as fund sizes get larger, then that clearly becomes more challenging. I think what we've seen over the last few years is that the size of the technology opportunity within venture is also getting bigger. Every company is now a technology company. And so I think there's going to be multiple companies that reach the sort of scale that we've seen over the last few years going forward. So, you know, do we want to have to underwrite a $50 billion exit to be a fund returner? Well, we're willing to do that in some instances where we've got conviction that the manager's been able to do that before. We can look into their portfolio to see if they've got other companies that are on that trajectory. But if we're having to make that assumption for a manager that's only ever had a billion dollar exit and maybe has only ever returned $150 million back to the part to an individual partnership, then that makes it much more challenging. So I, I think, you know, understanding what that exit size and the relationship between the exit size, ownership and fund size is really important. I'm happy to admit that I think a lot of 
the more established managers have probably scaled too quickly in recent years. But I look at what's been happening with emerging managers and, and they've been doing the same. It's just an order of magnitude different. It's, you know, one or more additional zeros on the on the fund. So I think the venture industry as a whole has been guilty of that. I'm hopeful that over the next few years, we can see fund sizes generally start to rationalize as people realize there's not an infinite amount of capital that can go into these companies. I think finding those fund returning outcomes is, is the most important thing that we look for. And I think the best gauge that we found is whether a manager is capable of doing that is have they done it before? And so that's why the earliest we would really look to intercept a manager would be fund three, because hopefully by then, you know, there would be enough evidence out of fund one that they have one or two of those companies that are a long way down that trajectory. Now, that assumes sort of normal three year investment periods. If they're putting it to work in 18 months, it's probably going to be fund five rather than fund three. But I think a lot of the things that I hear LPs talk about um, on, on, on you know, podcasts such as yours about, you know, wanting to find managers with an edge in a particular area. Um, I'm I'm rather skeptical that that actually correlates to successfully being able to predict performance. I was going to ask you how you look at fund three over the last four or five years, given the TVPI escalation we've seen, and now we're seeing a deceleration. But it, you answered that question by, it sounds like you have, you're going to wait longer. But but how are you seeing the performance? This is like the long, another long-standing meme question in venture, which is specialist versus generalist, and how do you get an edge? And is the edge, in your portfolio, what would you say the edge is of your unicorn hunters? When I look at, at our managers, it comes down to, you know, three or four key attributes. You know, you've got to see the deals. You've got to recognize them when you see them. You've got to be able to win them. You've got to be able to ideally add value. Then you've got to be able to understand how to get out of them. Those seem to be the four or five key elements. You know, what we're hearing from our managers is, is that most people will see most things at the Series A. So actually seeing a deal isn't the challenge. It's being able to recognize that it's perhaps one of these top 1% companies with world-class founders. And then it's about how do you win that? And I think one of the things, again, we consistently hear is that your chances of winning those super competitive deals increase the more that you have companies in your portfolio that you can use to reference back to those founders. So if I'm a VC and, and, and I've backed Facebook and Square and WhatsApp and companies like that, I can use the founders of those companies as my reference. And, and that's incredibly powerful when it comes to helping those managers win. And, and I think one of the other things that they're able to do as well is, is to lend credibility to startups. So if you have an Axel or an Andreessen or Sequoia backing you, and you're trying to hire a head of sales or a head of engineering, then I think that's incredibly powerful as part of the narrative that you're selling to, to, to that potential hire. So I think being able to lend that brand to the companies that they back um, is, is also um, you know, highly significant and in a powerful way that you know, they can really add value to those businesses. And, and then I think that the, the last thing I would touch on is, is just having been through the whole cycle with these top 1% companies previously so that they really understand when to lean in, when to be aggressive and when actually just to back off a little bit and, 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 and not, not chase valuations. I think being able to, to have that pattern recognition from years of experience, not necessarily within individual partners, but you know, within the partnership as a whole. 
um, is is really helpful. So I, th I think they would be the way, you know, when I'm thinking about what does that edge look like, it's not necessarily an edge in recognizing or seeing something that nobody else is seeing. It's, it's more about being ultra competitive in those highly competitive situations. When you talked about getting in, building an LP program, right? And you're looking at fund threes or fund fours that have earlier in their career, be it whatever the fund vintage is, found some of these successful companies. One of the questions I have is if that data is out there and you can see it and I can see it and Nick can see it, how do you then as an LP build a business around knowing that you can get into those funds? Because it's a bit like what you were saying about the Series A. And so how do you how do you make that magic happen? Because clearly you have, which congratulations. It's not it's not easy is, is what I'm thinking right from a general perspective in the market. It takes time. Um, and you have to make sure that you're sizing your program accordingly. Even though we're one of the longest established funder funds out there, we're, we're um, quite a distance away from being one of the largest funder funds out there. And, and that's deliberate. We don't just want to scale our business. We don't want to be the largest investor in VC funds. We, we want to be the best investor in VC funds. And we think there is a limit to, to how quickly you can scale that business. Because I, I do think, you know, once you get outside of whether you want to call it the sort of top 25, the top 30 managers, then I, then I think it's a very different risk return profile um, that you're looking at there. Um, and again, our experience is that you're, you're, you're adding additional risk for no additional return. So I think for us, we want to keep our portfolio very focused. And it means that we only need to add one or two names every three or four years. If I look back at, at what we've added um, over the last few years, there's probably been only one addition to our core manager portfolio. And that was partly because we thought it was impossible to differentiate managers over the last five years because everyone was doing fantastically well. We had no idea who was actually really generating alpha and who was simply capturing beta. So we kind of made a, a very conscious decision that we weren't going to go and chase managers at, at that stage. Um, and actually, when we look back at what we did post-financial crisis, there were three or four of our existing managers that we um, intercepted for the first time in 2009, 2010, 2011, because that was a time where a lot of their existing investors were struggling with the lack of liquidity. They were over allocated to venture. They had to pay back on their allocations. So I think there's an opportunity perhaps over the next few years where that story repeats itself. So actually, whereas we've been leaning back a little bit and leaning out over the last five years, it feels like we want to lean in over the next couple of vintages. And so there are a couple of names that we have on our portfolio that we'll spend a lot of time talking to and getting to know and building a relationship. And we'll share a lot of the data that, that we have with them. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully, you know, really build a rapport and, and, and so they can understand that we're long-term investors here. And, and, you know, we do see things over decades rather than, um, you know, two or three year cycles, but we'll pick our time to, to intercept. And, and I think, you know, one of the things I've, I've said to you previously is we don't have to do every great fund out there. We just have to make sure every fund we do is great. And, and, and that's really, I think the fundamental basis of how we see the venture industry. I love that quote. It's a good one. That applies to GPs too. <laughs> we don't have to do every company, but every company has to be great. So Correct. Although I, although I was thinking about it, the pitch book data that you were tweeting, David, was the, shows the, I wasn't saying the loss ratio for LPs is different from the loss ratio of a GP, but given the amount of 
really not even one X DPI out there. Maybe that's actually not true. I'd love someone to recreate those numbers because I, <laughs> I look at it and I'm, you know, it, I was I was I was very surprised by it. So if anyone has got access to PitchBook and would like to run those, <laughs> it would be great to get some confirmation that I haven't messed up on the analysis there. But yeah, you know what we found. So we, we looked at at all the, the the venture funds globally that had return data on PitchBook uh, that were raised between 2000 and 2015. So there were just under two. Um, 1,200 venture funds in that sample. And it was something like more than 50% of them hadn't returned 1x DPI. And so these are funds that are at least eight, nine years old, and in some instances, a lot older than that. And, and, and I was actually quite shocked by you know, how poor those DPI numbers were. And, and the flip side of that was there were just under 6% of them that had returned 3x DPI. And so I think when LPs are thinking about, you know, establishing a venture program, I know some of the conversations we've had with with some LPs previously, we've been um, a little bit surprised by their return expectations from venture. It'd be great to hear, you know, how you guys think of that. I mean, when when you were starting Notation, Nick, what what were you saying to to prospective LPs about about what your return expectations were for for the fund and, and similar visa, how are you thinking about it with you know the programs that you guys are running? I, I personally prefer it when folks give both TVPI and DPI because to your point, David, it is I'm constantly flabbergasted at how little DPI there is when people talk about numbers and what most of the time people are talking about is TVPI, but that especially what we're seeing right now over the last eighteen months and who knows where the world will go, but it's not. It's not feeling like the exit market is opening back up anytime soon. We're seeing a lot of folks that had three, five, eight X TVPI coming back down to one and a half to two. And there, I think there's gonna be a lot of a lot of that happening. So if you if you haven't converted it, I don't know how to wait the chance of converting. Hence my point of I like TVPI and DPI because you you do want to know people doing that. And so we've, for better or for worse, always built a program that believed DPI mattered. And so we do look for managers that also have that sensibility. It doesn't mean to say you can force an exit. It doesn't mean to say that exits will happen in certain timeframes, right? We're in the midst of looking at a bunch of fund extensions right now because everyone needs another couple of years to hang on for the next exit market. But it does mean we always have that lens with how we look. And I don't know if many GPs look, I don't know if all GPs, I should say this accurately, look at it with that same lens. I think the world has been, very, um, and for good reason, very receptive to TVPI only. I just think at the end of the day, even for people with like sort of infinite timeframes, at some point they need that money back from somewhere in their portfolio. And if it's not coming from venture, it will eventually get squeezed. That's my long-winded answer, Nick. Why don't you give a better one? I think for really early stage funds like ours, um, return expectations are a sort of a bizarre concept. It's almost like talking about the outcome rather than the process. The way I think about it is we have a very simple fund model and we just think about what is the total enterprise value of the portfolio need to be and what is our average ownership of that enterprise value need to be to produce 5X plus fund, which is our goal. We're trying to model in a realistic expectation around the total enterprise value of the portfolio and a realistic expectation of what we own of that portfolio to produce a reasonable outcome. But the, the reality is you're five or 10 years later and you look back and everything is different than the model. It's almost like a pre-seed company making a financial model for what their business is going to look like five, 10 years later. It's always obviously different and unexpected. I have 
slightly different question for David, which is I was listening to you talk about your own fund math and your kind of constraints around scaling. How do you as a firm, I mean, you've been doing this a very long time. How do you as a firm avoid strategy drift? Because I'm, I'm thinking about all the other things that you could be doing. Like, <laughs> let's build a seed program. And that seed program could lead to our sort of established manager program. And then we have relationships and we are already in the funds that maybe will graduate to our established manager program. Or maybe we should do a crypto fund. Of, like, there's so many other things around your core that you could be doing. Um, I appreciate the focus. And so I'm just curious as a firm and as a team, how you how you avoid all of the inevitable distractions. There's a few things that, that kind of go into that. I, I was at an LP meeting um, a few weeks ago and, and they put a quote up by Steve Jobs and it was basically along the lines of focus isn't about the things you do, it's about the things you don't do. That's what we want to make sure we're doing. We're not getting distracted by all of these things that, that look interesting and, and, and that could be great. We want to really continue to double down on the stuff that we know we can do well and and we have the data that shows that that we can generate you know strong and consistent performance you know through that strategy and i think there's a few things that are driving that focus one is the fact that i kind of earned my venture stripes in the in the late 90s through the, the dot-com boom and bust and we made all the mistakes you could possibly imagine during that time so we scaled our funds up in the late 90s. We broadened the number of managers we backed. Everybody was doing great. We thought if we're backing a manager whose last fund was 100% IRR, then you know it's only a matter of time before the next one's 100% IRR. For a while, we were the smartest people out there. And, and then the market turned and we were the dumbest. So if you kind of, you know, the, I can pull my sleeve up and you can see the scar tissue that I have from that period, which is venture is hard. There's only a fairly small number of managers that ultimately can generate outperformance and, and you need to be focused on on those managers that are able to do that consistently. So I think I think that's part of it and a very strong part of it. Um, but but the, you know we also have to think that commercially we're a fund of funds. We have to go out and raise capital from from um, third parties as well. Um, and so we need to have a value proposition that stands out in the market. There are lots of other funder funds that have the same access to managers that we have. You know, we're not any better at getting access, but we have you know, nearly 90% of our capital has gone to, you know, a dozen managers over the last decade. Um, what we do have is that is that real focus. And I think that's what differentiates us in the marketplace when we when we look at other funder funds. You know, we're focused on those dozen managers. And, and whereas, you know, some of our competitors would have 30, 40, 50 managers in their portfolio. And I think ultimately that's driven by capital under management and chasing AUM. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, we don't want to be the biggest. We just want to be the best. And we think that's the way that's going to allow us to do that over time. I love it. I'm very curious to hear um, both your perspectives on, on what the go forward looks like next year and, and maybe beyond. We've been through a rough patch here for the last 12, 18 months. You guys sit, I guess, in some similar parts of the ecosystem and also different. So just curious to hear different views on where we are and, and what the next year or two looks like. I think I'd mentioned earlier that that it feels like we're... Um, a little bit in the kind of the, the calm period before the next the next leg down. So, you know, we clearly saw um, a correction in the venture market, mainly around the later stage valuations, 
that were driven by the, the changes in the public markets. What I don't think we've really seen yet is the, the, the bulk of companies that raise capital in 21 at the top of the market come back to raise new rounds. You know, what we're hearing is a lot of those companies have done a really good job in extending their runway and in, in, in reducing burn and getting closer to profitability. I was just on a call with one of our managers yesterday and, and they were saying that I think it was something like three quarters of their companies have two years of, of runway uh, or more. I think people understand the playbook of, of what you do in a downturn. Um, but I do think that's that's just delaying the day of reckoning. Um, it feels like there are still too many private companies that were funded um, over the last few years. You know, one of the things we track, as, as I mentioned earlier, is what percent of companies are valued at less than 1x. Historically, it's been more than 50%. Since 2013, it's been more like 30%. So I do think we're going to see some reversion to the mean on that. And I, I think we're, we're starting to see that happen now. But it could take another 24 months until it's, it's fully played out. Obviously, what happens in the capital markets between then and now is probably going to have an impact on how severe that, that second leg down is. Um, but I, I definitely think we're going to see a lot of companies fail to raise any more capital and ultimately either have to find a home or, or, or go out of business. I do think we'll see some companies that are able to raise new rounds, but the valuations will be significantly lower than we saw in 21, even, even with the, the growth they've had over the last couple of years. I think one of the things I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about is, is that you know, we, we will see companies survive, but they'll no longer be growth businesses because they've had to cut away a lot of that growth just in order to, to eat their cash out for longer. So I think that the challenge for businesses is you need to be valued by the public markets ultimately as a growth company, not as a value business. And so how, you know, they've, they've, they've made a good transition from growth to, um, you know, growth at all costs to growth at a reasonable price. You know, can you, can you lean into that growth phase again? Um, if you do have a little bit more capital available. I do think we've got another leg down, um, but I think the good news is we will start to see, um, you know, that there's still a lot of companies we see in our underlying portfolio that continue to post good metrics that are um, very strong businesses that have been able to take advantage of this downturn to really improve their competitive position. So it, it feels like when the public markets eventually do reopen, there's a fairly um, strong pipeline of companies that could tap in there. The question is, is what does what does that valuation look like? Um, from a new return, uh, a new investment perspective, I'm I'm actually feeling much more excited about the prospects we're seeing for new capital deployment today than I have done for quite some time because there are, you know fewer funds out there raising capital, fewer ca less capital being invested, fewer companies you know being started. And, and I think, I think, you know, to, to, I think it was Chris Duvas who, who said that venture works best when time is plentiful and capital is scarce. And, and, and I very much buy into that. And what's your prognosis for all of the funds coming back to market in 2024? We're, we're hearing there's quite a few that and have done the similar, similar math that the G that the companies have done, which is let's wait and try to give 2023 a wide berth and and manage it out but maybe maybe come back in 2024 do you what's your sense amongst your lp peers about the receptivity to that i think it's really going to depend on on the on the individual managers I, th I think you have to have some credit in the bank with with your lps um and it'll be very difficult if, if you raised your fund one in in 21 and, and there's really nothing to show and now are looking to raise fund two i think i think they're going to be some really challenging conversations 
um, particularly if your LP base are also newer entrants into the asset class, because I, I think a lot of the people that came in for the first time at the top of the market are probably going to be the first ones to leave. I think fundraising for, for newer managers could be particularly challenging if you don't have credit in the bank with your LPs. And, and as you said earlier, Visa, you had been able to take advantage of the, the strong exit markets um, to put some points on the board and return some capital. So I think it'll be challenging. I think for some of the more established managers, there's, there's no real issue there. Um, you know, most of the managers that we back that you may see a little bit of turnover in their LP base. You may see them come back with slightly smaller funds as they've rationalized fund size. It may take a little bit longer to raise the capital, but I don't think there's a question about whether they will raise funds. Nick, what's your experience on the ground with, with startups? Are they, is this 2024 reckoning feel reasonable or are we cynical? We've seen some of this in our portfolio, but also just reading the tea leaves from announcements, I do agree with David that you're starting to see the insane unicorn batch from 2021 start to sort of hit reality. So just in the last couple of weeks, I think Convoy shut down pretty quickly and there were a couple other announcements. And I, I, I agree that I think we're just at the beginning of that, of these like billion or multi-billion dollar companies um, just almost overnight, at least from afar. I mean, I don't know the inner workings of some of these, but just from overnight, like we're shutting down operations in two weeks. There's no buyer. That's it. I do think we've unfortunately seen a couple of those in our own portfolio as well. So I do think we're in the early innings. I agree with everything you two have said. The other additional color I'd add is that anecdotally, but I've read this in some surveys that other folks have put out that I think from a denominator aspect, I'm sorry, I'm speaking from an LP perspective, there was a lot of denominator challenge, I don't know, 12, 18 months ago. And I feel like that's worked its way through the system. So mm -hmm. I don't, when I hear from my peer set, I don't hear as much of, oh, we're not doing more venture because of the denominator. What I hear mm -hmm. is exactly this. We think it's still going to be rocky over the next year because while people have cut their burn, that doesn't mean their product market fit is as established as they thought it was, possibly because they're selling to other startups that are having some constraint, possibly because if they're selling it to more established companies, startups or otherwise, the, the budgets are not like, yeah, do whatever you want. It's like, no, you have, the budgets are getting squashed. So all of that is working its way through. And then you do see these big blowups in companies, which is inevitable, but if it's all getting delayed, LPs, the most rational response from an LP is to say, let me wait and see if there's a question about this because of the whole entire whatever's going on in the firm versus a let me re-up right now and let me give me more time to see how these things get weathered. And I think the managers that are getting that question the most tend to be newer managers, funds one through four, right? To David's point, if you've been doing this for 15 years and you have history of DPI and TVPI and managing succession and new partners, I just, and you have a real connection with your LPs. I just think people have a lot more conviction around it. And the, I agree with everything David said, so I won't repeat it, but I do think for everybody else, 2024 is going to be a lot of, of reckoning and coming to terms with that. And I think for a lot of GPs, it's understanding how to engage with LPs in a way that's both authentic and talking about bad news without freaking everybody out to put a you know commercial term on it. But but it's fair, right? As, as an LP, I'd much rather hear, hey, I'm concerned. And we're hearing this from some of our GPs, like this vintage is challenged. And it mm. goes back as to, back to 2019. Like it's not just the 2021 vintage. And mm. we appreciate that. I mean, I'll just say as a plug, like we would much rather hear what your concerns are and why you're concerned and the companies that might look good on paper, but have some structural issues. 
than to not hear it and then be asked to re-underwrite it and not know what's going on. So that's my plug for the like transparency is great. I appreciate all LPs might not respond that way, but we'd much rather hear it. One of the things we would look for is, is for our GPs to get ahead of the curve in terms of making sure they're valuing their companies realistically. Um, and, and I know there can be a challenge around reducing valuations, particularly if you're about to embark on a fundraising process. But I think getting, getting those write downs in sooner rather than later is actually gives you credibility among um, LPs that, that really understand what the market looks like. You know, if we saw a manager that was holding everything at last round value and from 2021, then that's telling us an awful lot about, you know, how transparent that manager is likely to be and, um, and, and you know, perhaps what he thinks of their LPs as well. I have one last uh, maybe comment, but also question um, because I have less historical context than both of you, but, and I wasn't uh, around during the dot-com. Well, I was alive, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a VC. Um, You're making me feel old. And which, which is, which is it just, um, yeah, this is the portion where I make myself feel a little better. <laughs> um, <laughs> it feels like venture and the technology industry broadly is also just in a very different place than it was compared to the dot-com or even the financial crisis. Like my perception is that in the dot-com, there was broad questions around venture as an entire asset class. Is this a viable asset class? And it feels like today there is much broader institutional acceptance of this as an asset class and a part of a portfolio. And similar to what you said, David, at the very beginning, it feels like technology is now a much more accepted part of society, broadly speaking, it's in every company. And so even if this is a little bit of a rough patch, it feels like sort of the base that's been built in the technology business and the, and the venture business is much, much higher than it has been in previous downturns. That's my perception. I'm just I'm curious what you guys um, think about that and maybe through some historical context in previous downturns. As someone who started their venture career right on the eve of the 2000 collapse, I would definitely say wildly different from a I'm not sure if people didn't believe venture as an asset class didn't work. They thought it felt more of a cottage industry to use a right. overused term. I think there was significant question of whether or not the internet mattered, right? And so David and I have talked about this. There was the fund that I was in, I say this all the time so people know that it happens, gave back their money to the to the LPs, literally closed down. Other funds just gave back a lot of their money and became significantly smaller because it, they felt the opportunity set wasn't out there. But it didn't mean the venture as an asset class wasn't going to be true. And I don't, I don't think today people question it at all in the same way. I do think, and then I'm going to hand this over to David, is that I am seeing LPs that run a book of business that includes venture and private equity. This is more the foundation endowment model where they can do a wider range. Consider how much venture exposure they really want in the long term not getting out of it, but maybe it's getting trimmed versus some of the FOMO we saw in 19 and 20, where people were really piling in. I'm seeing folks just sort of, I would say, haircut. I don't know, David, how does that land for you? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think partly that's due to the increase in interest rates, because I think as interest rates go up, it has a greater impact on long duration asset classes. And I know talking to some of our investors who um, who run a strategic asset allocation model, you know, that that is a factor around um, what sort of allocation numbers it spits out for for things like venture and other another long duration assets. So I, I do think that's a part of it. But I kind of still come back to the fact that that it, it feels like every company 
now has to be a technology company. And even specifically, every company is probably going to have to be an AI company as well. It's some, it's some element. It's interesting in Europe because I think, I think you guys in the US have a much better understanding of how strategically important technology is from an investment perspective. I still think we're fighting that battle to some extent in, in, in Europe. I absolutely believe that having a significant exposure to technology is the only way that you're going to generate substantial growth in a portfolio. And, and whether it's through emerging managers or established managers, you know, that you can fight that battle and, and figure out what works best for you. But I, but I think you have to have significant exposure to these companies because ultimately, you know, that's what's going to be driving the, the growth in the economy long term. And you can see that in the public markets, too. 100%. I, I've been looking at all that data, you know, the top seven technology companies have basically produced all of the returns in the S&P over the last whatever it is, two, three four or five years. Yeah. So you see that at a much larger scale too. We're going to wrap it up. Fun. Okay. David, thank you so much. We're going to put all of your tweet threads in the podcast notes so folks can find you on X and read more as you write more and enjoy it as much as we did. Cool. Thank, thank you so much. Fun. I really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>